Hi, this is Cooper Quinton from the EFF Threat Lab, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, as always. And uh, today is episode 216 for April 19th, 2021. And uh, a little bit of quick personal news. I just got my second COVID-19 shot, my, my vaccine, my ouchie from Fauci <laughs> that I've heard it, I've heard some people call. And it went very well. My arm was a little bit sore the next day. Um, not really bad, like unless I bumped it or something, I didn't really notice it. And I got it, you know, late afternoon. And, you know, by the time I went to bed, I was feeling kind of tired and a little bit out of it. And when I woke up, I had a, bit, I had a headache. Uh, and was kind of tired, but, you know, took some ibuprofen and by lunchtime I was fine. So I realized that everybody has different reactions, but it, it, not everybody has one um, and they're not all bad. So anyway, I'm really, really glad to have gotten that one done and out of the way. So in 14 days, I should be good as gold. I've got lots of just random things to catch you up on. I'll tell you about a couple now, then we'll do the interview and then I'll fill the rest in later. But I'm in the process of fixing my iTunes podcast page. I don't know what happened. I've gone through all sorts of weird rigmarole trying to get through the right support team at Apple. Um, and that was that was kind of a nightmare. Uh, but I finally did get in touch with the right people. And all they could tell me is that somehow it was deleted. They couldn't tell me how. They couldn't tell me why. Um, they think it was, you know, me that did it or maybe my podcast host. I'm not, I'm not sure how it happened, but sometime in the last three or four weeks it was deleted. So if you went, if you try to go to that page on iTunes, it's just not there. So I've had to go through the process of resubmitting it to Apple. Now, of course, if you're already subscribed to the podcast, you're, you're golden. You don't have to go through iTunes to get it. There's an RSS feed that, you know, behind the scenes is how you subscribe to a podcast. And that's actually coming from somewhere else. But uh, anyway, if you wanted to look it up on iTunes to, oh, I don't know, say, leave me a nice review, you cannot do that right now because it doesn't exist. Now, they hopefully, hopefully will be um, reattaching all the reviews I did already have for the podcast. I mean, good Lord, I've done 216 episodes. I don't want to lose the reviews I've already gotten, especially since almost all of them were five-star reviews. So uh, they did say that that should get reassociated. Uh, We can only hope uh, but in the meantime, you can't leave a review and I can't check to see if there are any new reviews. So um, I guess there wouldn't be because you can't. So anyway, it could take a little while for that to get done, but I'm hoping that by uh, next week that we'll all be back to the way it should be and we'll all be back to normal there and you can leave a review. I did get a fresh review on the book. Thank you so much for that. And I will read that uh, after the interview today, but let's talk about the interview. We've got a two-parter again today and we're going to be talking with Cooper Quinton from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I ran across, uh, um, I was attending some sort of an online seminar where he gave a presentation, Cooper Quinton did, about this really cool project, this kind of a hacking project he had done to try to sniff out cell site simulators, often referred to as a stingray, in the same way that tissues are often referred to as Kleenex. Stingray is a very popular brand name that people may have heard of when they're talking about cell site simulators, but not all of them are stingrays. Anyway, so he, you know, it's it's obviously a privacy issue. A lot of times these things are used around protests and and rallies and things like that and and can be invasive. And so uh, he created a project where he wanted to try to detect the existence of these things. And it was really, really fascinating. So I decided to Really wanted to have him on the show. Now, of course, some of this is technical, um, but uh, you know, don't worry too much about the technical parts. Just the, the key takeaways are that this is possible and kind of in general, this is how it works. And this is why it's possible to do this sort of surveillance, this mass surveillance. And, you know, and we'll obviously we'll talk about the implications of the surveillance as well. So let's get right to it. This is part one of my interview with Cooper Quinton from the EFF. Cooper Quinton is a senior security researcher at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, where he studies digital threats to at-risk groups with the EFF Threat Lab. Welcome to the show, Cooper. Hi, glad to be here. I caught an interesting presentation you gave recently about MZ catchers or cell site simulators, and we'll, we'll define all that. Uh, but and in fact, maybe that's where we should start. So maybe uh, why don't you start by defining, you know, what, what, what's a cell site simulator, you know, what and how do they work? Yeah, so a cell site simulator is a 
tool used by governments and law enforcement that imitates a cell tower or a base station, as it's also called. Um, Basically, it broadcasts all of the same things that a legitimate cell tower would to try to get phones in the area to connect to it. Okay. So what are they, how how are they used for? How long have these things been around? Maybe historically speaking and historically, what kind of things have they been used for in the past? Yeah. So the first one, uh, the the first cell site simulator was the trigger fish. This is the first cell site simulator that was, publicly known um and it was first written about in around 1991 uh by some intrepid journalists and the use of the trigger fish and the most common use of cell site simulators in general is to physically locate a specific cell phone so Hmm. say you're law enforcement and you're going after a fugitive right and you're you know, you think that they're somewhere in this city. You think they're probably somewhere in, you know, this one square mile radius. You can get out your trigger fish or stingray. These are all brand names for cell site simulators okay. or MC catchers. And you can have it search for the unique identifiers that that cell phone is constantly broadcasting by acting like a cell tower and saying to all cell phones in the area, hey, connect to me. When one of those cell phones connects to you, you look and see, is this the cell phone I'm looking for? If not, you let it go. If it is the cell phone you're looking for, then using some properties of radio physics, you can figure out which direction it is from you and about how far away it is. And then you can use that to sort of home in on your target. So at that point, are are you... I would think that this isn't a fully functional cell tower. So is it just connects long enough to grab this metadata and then let you go to your regular cell tower so you can actually make and receive phone calls? Or does it somehow act as a proxy? So it, the answer to that is it depends. There are a few different ways that these can be used. The most common way is that an MC catcher will grab your phone, identify whether or not it is the target phone, and then if it's not, it will let it go. But they can also be configured to act as what's called a man in the middle, mm. where where the cell site simulator will let your phone connect to it and stay connected to it, hmm. and then pass your calls on to a legitimate tower to connect to the call, but be essentially in the middle between you and that legitimate tower so that law enforcement or whoever's operating it could see who you're calling or see who you're texting or what you're texting about or what you're calling about. And that is one possible use of cell site simulators. Okay. And, and we have been throwing around the term IMSI. That's I-M-S-I. What does that stand for? Yeah. Uh, so the specific identifier that these look for is the International Mobile Subscriber ID, or IMSI. And this is the ID that is unique to your SIM card. It identifies you. So the SIM card is the little card in your mm-hmm. phone that you have to have in there to get service from your cell phone provider, right? And right. it uniquely identifies you to your cellular provider, such as AT&T or Verizon, for billing purposes. Um, but it also uniquely identifies you amongst every other cell phone out there um, and can be used by the police to find you. So the way this works is they would call up Verizon or AT&T or whoever your cell provider is, and they'd say, hey, we need the subscriber ID or the MC for Cooper Quinton, right? And then AT&T or Verizon would give them that subscriber ID, and then they would punch that into their MC catcher cell site simulator, which, by the way, uh, these terms I'm using interchangeably, but they all mean the same thing. Yeah, okay. They would punch that into their MC catcher, and then go around and start looking for my phone. Gotcha. Creepy. Uh, so what, like, what do these actually look like? Like, is this something I would recognize when I see it or is it usually hidden? Uh, you know, if I'm trying to locate this near somebody I want to surveil, like, what do I, how do I 
is it in the back of my van? <laughs> How does this work? Yeah, uh, there are a bunch of different types of these things. Uh, there are some that are outfitted in airplanes, um, hmm. like a Cessna or like, you know, any type of small aircraft. Um, there are some that are outfitted in vans or trucks. And then there are some that can be hand carried or oh, wow. you know, worn in a backpack. So there, there are all different types of these. And in fact, a lot of police departments in the U.S. seem to own, you know, like can own even a couple of different types, right? So for example, in Oakland, where I'm from, the Oakland PD has a model that they uh, mount in the back of a truck. And the only way that you would know if that was around would be to know what that truck is, right? Hmm. To know what that truck looks like. Because otherwise it just kind of looks like an ordinary truck with a weird... <laughs> with a with a kind of like very subtle but weird antenna on the top, which is it just looks like a um, the antenna sort of looks like one of those thi- like one of those things that you put over a plate of food to keep it warm. Okay, like a, a parabolic dish kind of a thing. Not even a parabolic dish, like a um, like a like a thick frisbee. Okay, huh? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, like a like a, maybe like a six inch thick frisbee, basically. Okay. <laughs> Somewhere between a parabolic dish and a flat disc. Yeah, exactly. Like a, a, a disc, but that's thick, right? Okay. A disc that has some Z axis. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so that's the only way that you would, that's the only way that you would know, right? Uh, is if you knew what exact, you know, maybe what exact model of truck it was. And it's like a gray Toyota Tacoma, right? And there's more than a couple of those, right? So sure. like, you'd really have to, you'd really have to be looking for that dish. You'd have to know the license plate, maybe, right? The thing, the, the point being that these, these things are not easy to spot with your eyes. You wouldn't be like, oh, that's the, you know, the van doesn't have, you know, MC catcher unit painted on the side. Right, right. right. Okay, so you mentioned, you kind of off the cuff mentioned some of the things that you might be able to gather with one of these, but let's let's walk through it. Like what what kind of information do can you capture with these calls? It sounds like maybe, yeah. for, you know, the content may, may not be possible, but what about what sorts of metadata or maybe you can get content? What can you capture with a, an MC catcher? Yeah. So, so those are really good questions. And I want to preface it with, as far as we know, in the US, the vast, vast, vast majority of usage of these is to locate a specific phone or to see which phones are in a specific area. So another, another use of these is that if I want to know who is hanging out on a particular street corner or who is milling around at a particular protest, I can turn on the MC catcher and just have it gather all of the MCs, all of the identifiers in a, you know, within a given radius of the MC catcher. And then I can go back later and take those MCs to the phone company and say, hey, I want the subscriber details for these identifiers, right? So I want to know who all was on this on this corner of the block at this time, or who was at right. the you know who was in fr- protesting you know in front of the uh, bank at this time, right? And that would be that would that's another very common use for them for law enforcement. We think we don't think that law enforcement in the U.S. typically uses them for metadata purposes but that is a potential use for them so some of the things you can get are yeah like you know details about who a person is calling details about who they're texting and even actually the content of text messages and phone calls yes but this can only be done when the target phone is communicating over 2G. Mm. Uh, so this is the older, the second generation, uh, the older cellular communication standard. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is what was the standard back, you know, in like if you had a cell phone in like the early 2000s, it would have been primarily communicating over 2G. These days, most phones, almost every phone, typically operates over 4G or LTE. And 
4G has fixed the vulnerabilities which would let you listen in on a conversation with a man in the middle. The problem is that an MC catcher can convince a phone to downgrade itself mm -hmm. from LTE to back to 2G, where it can then do all of these attacks. So that's that's the state of things. That's that's where that's at. If okay. you're on 4G, you can only the only thing you have to worry about is location tracking. But if you're on or or you know somebody knowing that you're in a specific area, right? But if you're on 2G, then there's a lot more to worry about. Okay, so that brings up a lot of questions. So first of all, let's let me ask about the the downgrading thing. So so the problem is, well, and I'm sure that the the cell carriers and the standards bodies would say this is a feature, not a bug, is that these phones are meant to be as universally usable as possible, right? So that if you're in some weird area that for some reason doesn't have modern technology, you still want to be able to make phone calls. So it wants to be able to go to these older technologies to give you, you know, some way of still using your phone. But what you're saying is these older technologies, because they are so insecure, that is what's really what the issue is here, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, I think that you've you've hit the nail on the head there, which is, yeah, that's exactly the problem, is that phone companies want you to be able to use your phone wherever you are. And backwards compatibility is extremely important to them because the number one thing that you've got to do as a phone company is connect phone calls, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of phone companies are retiring 2G and a lot have. But phone manufacturers still support 2G and still have to support 2G because they exactly they want people to still be able to make calls in an area where all they're getting is 2G. And like in some areas of the world, 2G is still the predominant communication mm -hmm. method, right? Um, the, you know, we 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 have to remember that the U.S. isn't the only country in the world, right? Right, right, right. Um, and in a lot of areas, 2G is all you get. So. So yeah, is it's a problem, and it's a problem because the vulnerabilities in 2G are very well known and have been well known for many many years, but it is so slow and so costly to upgrade worldwide infrastructure right. that it's going to take a really long time to to get everybody up to 4G. Right. And this is actually a very common problem in security. And it's the same thing when you're talking about, you know, Wi-Fi standards for the old web, you know, web encrypted, what I forget what web stands for, but that, that was cracked a long time ago. And, yeah. and so you don't want to use that for your Wi-Fi thing, but you also don't want your laptop to, or phone to automatically connect to a web connection if you can help it, because it's just not, it's, it's not secure. So that brings me to my next question is, first of all, if I'm getting off the airport and all of a sudden my phone drops to 2G, should I be worried? And B, is there, are phone manufacturers addressing this in any way, either through software or hardware, are they giving you the option to not connect to 2G? Right. So, okay. I'll answer the second question first. Okay. Um, which is that so far they have not addressed this. There are, there is no major phone that lets you, that gives you an easy way to disable 2G. I think that this would be a fantastic feature, right? Because, of course, not everybody can or does want to disable 2G, right? right? Sometimes you might need 2G to make a call, right? But I would personally, and I think a lot of people would, like to have a toggle, have a setting somewhere in my phone that, that says never connect to 2G. Like just never right, yeah. like, turn off the 2G radio. Don't do any connections. Just turn it off. Leave it off. Right. And then if I, you know, if I do go somewhere very remote or somewhere that doesn't have any 4G service, I can go in and turn it back on. Right. right. And, and know that that's the risk that I'm taking. But yeah, no, so far that is not an option. There is on some of the like Google made Android phones, like the Pixel line, there is a secret diagnostic menu. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That will let you switch your phone to LTE only, and I haven't I haven't really like 
I can't say that I've thoroughly tested that to know like, you know, whether that's foolproof or not. Right. Um, but also it's a secret diagnostic menu. That's right. not user-friendly at all. Right. So it would be, I think it would be excellent for, for, I think this would be an excellent thing for Google, for Apple, for Samsung, um, you know, all the major phone manufacturers to do. That said, what they need in order to do that is the, the, the people at the top of those companies need to be convinced that this is a problem. They need to be convinced that MC catchers are a real threat and that 2G or GSM specifically is a real threat. And they need to see that this is something that their customers want. And then, you know, once the people at the top are convinced, then, you know, then all it is is a simple feat of engineering. Right. Which is which is a joke for all my engineers out there who <laughs> know how, you know, uh, I, I can't even imagine how insanely complex something so simple sounding would actually end up being. Right. Um, from an engineering standpoint. But that's just a matter of engineering, whereas the politics of it, I think, is, is the much harder barrier to get over. And you had another question there, but I've now forgotten what it was. Right. So it was it was kind of off the cuff. But if I if I walk off uh, the plane at right. an international right. U.S. Right. airport where I should not expect to see two G, but my phone goes to two G, what is it? Or I'm at a protest, and, you know, in you know some big city in the U.S. or some other big metropolitan area where there should be no two G, and I see my phone going to two G. Does that is that a tip? Um, I would say it is a reason for suspicion. Mm-hmm but not proof right. that there is an MC catcher nearby. The thing about the cellular network is it's weird. It's a very large, complex system with a ton of moving parts. Sure. Uh, new towers are put up all, all the time, right? There are things called small cells, which are like or even microcells, which are, you can think of them as tiny cell towers because not right. every cell's on a tower, right? Base right. stations, base stations are what's on a cell tower, and base stations are basically a computer attached to an antenna that receives the communications from your cell phone, process them, and send them onto the phone company, right? right? And that's what that's what you, that's what is actually on a cell tower. The tower is just something to get the antenna up high. Right. right. They have these things for your home, right? I mean, they call them femto exactly. cells. But there are tiny base stations everywhere. There's femto cells in people's houses. There are small cells inside of like buildings, buildings like shopping right. malls, yeah. right? And and these things are going up and going down all the time. So so the landscape of that is very weird, right? And like if the 4G network in one, like say all the 4G base station, say the 4G base station that your phone is connecting to is overloaded because there are a lot of people in one specific place, like, mm. like a protest. might happen at a protest. Then your phone will try to go out farther and farther to try to find a base station that's not overloaded. And it might end up in the course of that connecting to a 2G base station. Mm-hmm. So the upshot of all that is that if your phone downgrades to 2G, it could be a sign of somebody performing an active downgrading attack and trying to downgrade phones to 2G. Or it could be a sign of the cellular network acting weird. And right. that's why that's that's you know that's that's what makes these things so sure. so difficult, right? And the fact is that we have really had to reverse engineer all of the details about how these things work. Like there's no, there's a lot of secrecy around how MC yeah, catchers sure. work. There's not really any, like, like the companies aren't talking about it, A, because they're trade secrets, but B, mm-hmm. because they don't want people to know how they work yeah, so that right. people could potentially avoid them. Right. right. Um, and in fact, for a long time, they didn't even want people to know that they existed. Sure. Now that, that, you know, that uh, the cat's out of the bag on that one, but they still have a vested interest in people not knowing how they work. So it's been, it's, so we've had to reverse engineer how they work through 
things like getting, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests, right? Getting documents from police, from governments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of their communications with these companies, finding marketing materials, right? Finding manuals, right? Um, oh yeah, and things like that, and and just and just sort of studying the vulnerabilities in the cellular network and saying like, hey, okay, uh, you know, if they they claim to have this ability you could get to that ability by exploiting these vulnerabilities in 2G or in 3G or in 4G, right? So that's that's how we've had to figure this out. But it makes it hard. It makes it hard to tell, like b between that secrecy of these, uh, how these work and the complexity of the cell phone network, it can make it hard to tell if some anomaly that's happening right. is an MC catcher or just a a fluke of the telephone network. Right. Okay, so you mentioned that these things are secret proprietary. So that begs the question, who who is actually manufacturing these? If I were in, in law enforcement and I wanted to purchase one of these, I, I'm guessing if I was CIA or NSA, I'd probably have my source. I have ways to make that happen. But if, I, if I'm a local police department or sheriff's department and I think these are cool and I want to get one, who do I approach to buy one and what does it cost? Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of companies that make these actually. Hmm. So and 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 lots of them that will sell to local sheriff's department. The biggest or at least most well-known company is probably Harris Corporation. Hmm. So and Harris actually no longer sells to local police. They only sell to to federal agencies at this point uh. because they kept selling to local police and local police kept getting FOIA'd or kept abusing these things. And all of Harris's secrets were sort of getting out because the police weren't being as careful as they would like. So Harris has stopped selling these to local law enforcement, but uh, there are plenty of other companies that will sell these. There's a company called KeyW that makes these and sells them to law enforcement. There's a, there's a Israeli company called Rayzone that makes and sells these. There is the, digital receiver technology that makes one called the dirt box and uh, DRT box. Okay. Uh, and this is, this is the one that is specifically made to be mounted to a small uh, plane. Oh my. Yeah. Or a okay. Small aircraft. Uh -huh. um, so there are a bunch of different companies that make these. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of new companies. There's a bunch of Chinese companies that are, that are getting into the game. Right. There's a bunch of Israeli companies. So it's, it's all over the place. There's all sorts of companies that'll make these and sell them to you. And, you know, some of them are a lot more shady than others, right? Harris will only sell to the federal government in the U.S. And I don't actually, I don't know if, what their policy is on selling outside the U.S., but like plenty of other companies will sell to tin pot dictators, sure, yeah. um, private investigators, people oh who yeah. just say that they're private investigators um, <laughs> right <laughs> right uh or or you know possibly um like criminals right like cartels and stuff uh we just don't you know we it's all it's, it's a pretty like secretive shadowy world right that these companies are operating in so that brings me to my next set of questions and uh and i realize you're not in the legal department at the eff but what it sounds like it's really only company policy that determines who they will sell these things to, as opposed to governed by any sort of, you know, privacy-based regulation. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. My lawyers would want me to say that. Yeah. Um, but yes, as, as far as I know, there are, and I'm probably wrong about this, and we'll probably get a... Uh, <laughs> email about all of the laws governing this um but as far as i know there are no laws in the u.s regarding who can be sold an ipsy catcher however there are laws governing who can transmit in the frequencies mm. that are used by cell towers or cellular base stations you and i and most people, most everyone, are not allowed to transmit in those frequencies. You have to have equipment that is specifically licensed to transmit in those frequencies. Now, police, I, as far as I understand, 
either you know the equipment is licensed or they get special immunity to transmit mm. in those frequencies and not every imc catcher transmits a lot of them can operate passively without any transmission at all um or at least that's one that's one potential mode for them okay um, i think that i think that over 4g i am not aware of any passive like tr- receive only attacks i think you would have to transmit for it to work is based on my understanding so sorry that's all kind of a digression <sighs> to get back to your question there are no laws about who these can be sold to. There are exactly like you said, only company policies. Most of the US based companies want to feel like, you know, they are the good guys and they're getting right. the bad guys, right? right. And so that yeah. they will only sell to law enforcement. Uh, now, whether you think law enforcement are the good guys or the bad guys right. may be a very different perspective from what these companies have. Right. But that's 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 their take. But there are all sorts of other companies all over the world that, you know, perhaps don't have any such qualms about selling to whoever is willing to buy these. So what are they cost prohibitive? What 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 is what are these what do these things run? That's a great question. So they can run anywhere from a couple of you know, few hundred thousand dollars. A hundred thousand? Some of yeah. In the case of some of Harris's stuff, to you know, you can build a reasonable facsimile of one yourself for a few, you know, maybe a hundred dollars in equipment. Oh wow! Yeah, so so really, the range on these things is all over the place, right? So is this like a anarchist cookbook kind of thing where today's internet, you could go somewhere and just get somebody's GitHub download? specs for building one uh or would you rather not say (laughs) you can i would encourage people not to and here's why a if you transmit with these you're breaking the law certainly sure you are you are breaking at the very least you are violating fcc regulations which they will arrest you for okay Um, this is not legal advice right 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 (laughs) um but also, can I cuss on this show? <laughs> sure. You're just kind of being a dick. <laughs> like it's it's not it's not a cool thing to do, right? But if you did want to experiment with this for yourself, my again, this is not legal advice. Right. Suggestion would be to set up a situation where you can shield Mm-hmm. your your thing from any other cell phones like your neighbor's cell phones or anything else right, right? either like you know do it in a metal box faraday do it, cage, you yeah. know, somewhere very remote right build yourself a faraday cage which is just a <laughs> box that doesn't allow uh transmissions to go out right? right do it in like a special lab setting at a university like a lot of universities work on this stuff and what sure. they have is special lab setup where you know that is rf shielded right where where transmissions won't go out and they can sort of set up their own radio environment within this one room right um so that's that's the way to responsibly play with this stuff at home um, is to is to set yourself up like that or go somewhere very remote where you don't have to worry about other you know interfering right all right so let's back away from the tech a little bit Uh, do we do we have any idea how often these are actually being used in the US. I, I assume the trends are probably increasing, but do we even have that data? And and if so, it sounds like FOIA requests are the main way. Is there any other way that we might know how these things are? Be, and actually, we're going to get to the thing where you detect them later, but mm-hmm. <laughs> generally speaking from in public records, is there any way to know? Yeah. So, so public records are the only way we have an idea of how much these are being used. And it's pretty shocking so so thanks to uh, a FOIA request from the American Civil Liberties Union the ACLU uh, we know that the Department of Homeland Security and ICE used their cell site simulators hundreds of times per year Hmm. between you know 2013 and 2019 you know like like once every couple of days wow right we know that Customs and Border Patrol has I think the number is like nine or 10 of these things 
right? So, and I don't think we have the numbers on how often they're using them, but they have 10 of them. So you can imagine they're using them quite a lot, right? Yeah. You know, if you're only using it every, you know, once a week or once a month, you don't really need 10, right? <sighs> right. You probably only need one. And uh, thanks to some documents that EFF got from Santa Barbara PD, we know that they, so Santa Barbara is a medium-sized city in Southern California. Santa Barbara PD used theirs also, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think it was something like 100 to 160 or something like that times a year over the course of a couple of years. So their numbers almost match what, how often the, um, you know, some of these federal agencies are using them, which is absolutely wild. Right. And you got to wonder what the heck are they even pulling this thing out for if they're using it that often. All right. So let's, let's switch from, you know, offense to defense now and maybe an increasing level of complexity. The, the most obvious thing to me would be a, an iPhone app or a, an Android app that might let me somehow detect this going on. Uh, do, do those exist? And if so, how good are they? So those do exist, uh, not for iPhone. Uh, there are a few of them that exist for Android. And I have not found them to be particularly useful or reliable. So I think that the problem with these apps is that given their position on your phone, like as running as apps, they only have access to a limited amount of data, right? Sure, right. They only have access to the data that the that Android will give them, right? right? And and this is pretty high level data about the connection between your phone and the cell tower. Now, given that, I think that a lot of the things they're looking at could also happen because of the what I said before, which oh, is just sure, the yeah. cell phone mm-hmm. network being weird. I also think that they might miss a lot of things that could actually be indicative of an MC catcher. So when I first started doing this research, I tried out a few of these apps. And what I found was that they were, A, constantly going off, right? Like, mm, like False positives? Yeah, a lot of false positives. There were all sorts of little alerts going off all the time. And, you know, I had to believe that there wasn't a cop sitting outside of my house with an MC catcher 24 seven. Right. Um, you know, and they're, and following me around everywhere I went. Right. Mm. Um, and that there aren't just, you know, MC catchers littering the streets of San Francisco and Oakland. Well, right. you know, now that you've done so, the research and now that you've probably been public, I'm sure they are, but you know, this was before that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's not paranoia if they're really following you. That's right. Um, but no, it's it's so there were a lot of false positives. And the other thing is that all of these apps are designed to look for the th- the ways that the older generation of MC catchers that worked natively on 2G, mm. they're designed to detect those older MC catchers, right? Because those are the ones that we know the most about. Those are the things that people have spent the most time studying. So, so all of the all of the detection methods are based around what we think that those older MC catchers do. The problem with all the with this is that the newer generation of MC catchers that work natively on LTE have totally different methods for catching a phone, right? Mm. And I don't think that those methods would be detected by any of these apps. So so there's a couple of problems with them basically. And you know, to to sum it up, it's that they're that they're looking for old things and that they have a ton of false positives because the data that they have is limited. And because the cell phone network has a lot of anomalies because it's a complex, chaotic system. Right. Okay, so the next level, maybe uh, how about a hardware detector, like a little handheld, you know, like you might see on, you know, CSI or something like that. I, I know that they actually, if you go to certain websites, you can buy all sorts of like, you know, hidden camera finders and things like that. So can you go to Hack5 and buy yourself an MC Catcher detector? So 
you cannot go to Hack5 and buy one of these. <laughs> there are some very specialized companies that do sell products which they claim can detect uh, what they call rogue base stations, which is the same thing. Hmm. Again, it's a, just an MC catcher, a cell site simulator, fake base station, all the same things. So there are some companies that sell these. But in of the companies that sell these, they tend to specifically only sell them to law enforcement or federal agencies. And this is so that, so say, for example, actually, last year, there was a report, I think it was last year, it might have been 2019, there was a report put out by the Department of Homeland Security that said that they were aware of several rogue base stations around D.C., specifically around the Capitol, around hmm, mm-hmm. Congress, around the White House. Yeah, right? sure. Um, and, and, you know, that is something that is pretty alarming for good reason to the national security community. <sighs> right. Right. So there are companies that will sell these to that will sell devices that, that they claim do this. And I can't I can't speak to how well they work because I they won't let me play with them. <laughs> um, uh, but there are companies that sell these to the federal government. Now, they specifically don't sell these to private citizens, a because they're expensive as hell. Mm. But and I, I can't give you an exact price, but I know that they're they're way they're way out of the price range of of you know an individual person, right? They're trying to sell these to the government. And the government has deep pockets, sure. But also mainly that they don't want to they don't they're not actually against MC catchers. These companies they don't want to interfere with law enforcement use of MC catchers. Mm. They only want to interfere with foreign. You know, foreign use of MC catchers, spy, you know, for um, spying purposes, right? Spying on our the U.S. government, right? right? So that's that's really their thing, and they don't. So they don't sell these. There's nothing off the shelf that you or I could go buy um, and take home and plug in that will tell us if there's an MC catcher. There are some open source projects out there that are so like these are software projects that are free online and you have to buy some hardware yourself and you have to sort of set it up and install everything and and get it running and it's not turnkey right it's 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 more work it's kind of diy right right um, and there's no there's no support line to call right and and, and we're going to get to that in a minute because you actually built one of these and i want to talk about that but i did, i want yes. to i want to make the point that this is kind of maybe a helpful mental exercise is if to switch the roles and think, okay, you know, I, I, maybe I believe that the cops are always the good guys. And so I'm okay that they have these, but then think about foreign surveillance or foreign espionage. And so now you've got, you know, the Chinese government, the Russian government planning these things in and around DC. I know that, for example, there's been uh, some studies done that show that they've been able to track the president by tracking the cell phones of the secret service agents with him. Yep as opposed to tracking him directly. And so this is, you know, you know, there's a reason to think about this from the other perspective. And, you know, if it helps to put on those different glasses, you know, then, you know, maybe that, you know, gives you a better perspective. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so we'll pick up with that thought next week when we do part two of the interview with Cooper Quinn. And so, you know, it's important to understand that, you know, when we do these things, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And there are unforeseen consequences when you do things like this. It it has knock-on impacts that, that you might not be counting on. For example, Fitbit, you know, the, the little thing that you can wear on your wrist that helps you do fitness tracking, ended up revealing the location of a lot of hidden, supposedly secret military bases around the world because, you know, the soldiers, when they got their time off, they want to get some exercise in, they go run around the base. And so if they're wearing a Fitbit and that Fitbit is automatically uploading their route to the website so that, you know, cause they had some feature where you could kind of show a heat map of where people like to jog. And then when these heat maps show in the middle of supposedly in the middle of nowhere, you start to realize that there really is something there, even though the map doesn't show it. So, you know, whenever you implement one of these kind of tracking devices, it can be abused. It can find its way into other people's hands when you don't mean it to and reveal things that you didn't intend. So anyway, we'll pick up with that next week and we're going to get a little more technical because we're going to talk a little bit about how Quentin built his device 
and we're not going to get into super technical detail of that, but uh, for my patrons, I've got all sorts of bonus content. So I've actually got three little segments. I'm going to put two out today or tomorrow, and then I'm going to release the other one next week. And Cooper gives a really interesting background and his origin story, like how he got to be where he is today. Uh, it's got some really funny anecdotes and he's going to give a shout out to a couple of organizations that he really, uh, he really likes and wants to acknowledge. And then next week, um, he, I ask him to go into detail about how to create his cool little MZ catcher tracking device, his crocodile hunter. So, uh, if you want to get geeked out on that, you can be a patron and get all that info next week when I release that little uh, bonus content snippet. After that second interview, we're going to have a big news show. Man, there's just so many things going on. Uh, I will say right away, uh, if you are on Windows or use the Chrome browser, make sure you get those updated right away. There's some really bad bugs associated with both the Chrome browser and Windows 10 that you definitely need to make sure that you are up to date on so that you are not vulnerable. There's a really interesting story about the solar winds attack and similar uh, hacks where the FBI has actually started hacking into companies' computers without their consent to fix the problem <laughs> because it's not getting fixed fast enough. So that's really interesting. And that'll have some, we'll definitely need to talk about that and some of that, those implications. And there's another, another massive bug found in, I think it was in Linux, a version of Linux that's used in a lot of Internet of Things devices, those little smart devices that we're all buying up like crazy to put in our homes that are little computers running Linux operating system. And if that operating system has bugs in it and you don't update it, those things are vulnerable. Uh, this report says something like 100 million devices may be affected by this. So anyway, lots of news, as always, to cover, and we'll do that after the interviews. I ran across this article about uh, somebody said, here are the top 21 cybersecurity experts that you must follow on Twitter. And I looked through the list of 21 people, and lo and behold, four of those 21 people have been guests on this show. thought that was really cool. And uh, I guess it's given me some targets for some other people I might want to invite on the show. Though some of these people I have reached out to, and I just can't get to them. Uh, Brian Krebs, I cannot get through to him. Kevin Mitnick, he's a He's a classic hacker, uh, like one of the hacker gods if you're into hacking. Uh, I'd love to get him on the show. Uh, I'm not even sure how I would go about finding him. But I did have four of the other ones, including, of course, Bruce Schneier, uh, Adam Levin, Eva Galperin from EFF, and Troy Hunt uh, just recently. So I thought I just thought that was cool that I managed to get four of those top 21 people. Okay, uh, other news. Uh, I just finished, well, a couple months ago, actually, I finished a video tutorial for APRESS, my publisher, uh, they've got some sort of a subscription-based learning tool, kind of like uh, LinkedIn Learning or Udemy, I guess, or some of these other ones. But they wanted me to do a video for them. So I wrote or I, uh, I put together a video class about an hour long called Maximum Privacy with End-to-End -end Encryption. You know, how to basically do completely private and secure communications today on the web. And that has just been posted. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go check it out. Uh, without a subscription, you could at least see the intro. And I honestly, I, I've looked, I'm not sure how you subscribe as a, as a person. I know that they offer this like to corporations and to academia. I didn't really see a way to subscribe as an individual person, but I've asked them about that and hopefully they'll get back to me. And if that's possible, I will let you know how it, though you'd think if you just went to the website, it would be obvious, but I didn't see it. Anyway, that was fun. And I'm hoping to do some more videos for them. Also, at some point, I hope to do some videos for YouTube and for everybody and just post them out there, too, and some for my patrons and so many things I want to do in so little time. Uh, but stay tuned. Hopefully, I'll get to that at some point. Now, there was a brand new review on Amazon. Thank you so much. It was five stars, and I just want to read it here briefly, as I said I would. Uh, the person just listed their name as DGS. And uh, short but sweet, it said, um, this is a terrific book. It's easy to understand, has wonderful tips and resources, and should be a required read for everyone. I've given several copies as gifts. Thank you very much. And then it says, Dr. Parker, I'm not a doctor. Dr. Parker is amazing in his ability to take complex issues and make them understandable. So uh, anyway, thank you so much, DGS, for that review. And thanks in advance for anybody else who leaves a review as well. Those really, really help. One more thing, actually, now that I think about it, I posted a review of the book Privacy is Power on my website, but I also took a snippet of that and put it on Amazon itself uh, against the book. And uh, one another way that you could help if you're looking to help me 
is find that review for Privacy is Power. And I'm pretty sure it just has Carrie Parker. So it's um, obviously for me. Uh, and mark it as helpful. That way it'll kind of pop up and uh, more people will receive my, my review. And, you know, maybe they'll follow then eventually go check out my website. But also, I mean, it's just a really, really damn good book. So if you're looking for any kind of a present to give somebody at some point, it's it's a great book. Uh, I've I think I already said I've already bought five copies of it myself to give away. So it, it, check it out for sure and give it away. It's got some really important information in it, and uh, I think it'll help give everybody a better perspective on why privacy is so important. I uh, also had a recent um, article kind of based on what we talked about last week with the tip of the week, uh, trust no one. And I went ahead and wrote a whole article on that and had some other tips in there that um, I think went beyond even what I said in the podcast last week. So you might want to check that out as well. The secret project is still in the works. I keep saying that. Trust me, it is. It's, it's manufacturing now. It should be, if all goes well, the manufacturing should complete next week. And I'm working on building up a big promotion around all this. So all the information will that be coming soon. Now I'm open to ideas. I think I mentioned last week as well. If you have, if you have any feedback on some really cool, fun, interesting, uh, you know, promotion that I could do, something you would find interesting, something that would draw you in or might draw others in, uh, maybe something I haven't done before. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear your ideas. You can just send. Uh, if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll find uh, you'll find my contact information there. I'd love to hear from you. Or of course, if you're a patron, we could just talk about it on Discord. I would love to get your feedback in any way, shape, or form. So please send me whatever ideas you might have about anything related to the book, the podcast, possible promotion ideas, whatever. Of course, check me out on Facebook, Twitter. You can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Mastodon. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, which currently right now it's just the podcast, but I, I do hope to add some more stuff to that at some point. But it just, in all cases, it just helps to have more followers. So check those out if you haven't already. Uh, and now I am going to go take a class from the Tech Learning Collective. Uh, those are the guys we had on the show a few months back. I guess it was maybe it was February. Maybe it's not that long ago. If you if you missed that episode, it's a great one to listen to. Uh, and I'm going to go take a class from these guys. Uh, I'm taking the Cyberspace Network Sniffing and Scanning class. But they've got a lot of basic computer user classes too. So if you just search on the Tech Learning Collective, you'll find it. Or if you go through, pick through some of my podcasts, uh, you'll find it there and there'll be links in there as well. So I'm going to go enjoy my class. And for the rest of you out there, take care, get those shots, help other people to get their shots as well. Part two of our interview with Cooper Quinton will be next week. Spring is here. Hopefully you're enjoying the weather. And uh, as always, everybody, stay safe out there. And until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>